0: The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text the reel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible.
1: This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies tonight on the show. Get your mustache straps, because we're boarding the Orient Express for murder.
2: This is no ordinary train. This is the legendary Orient Express. Witness to many strange adventures and foreign intrigues from Istanbul to Calais. This is no ordinary passenger. Monsieur Poirot is a detective. This is the world's most celebrated crime fighter. I take a professional interest in crime. Agatha Christie's brilliant Belgian detective. Uh, Belgians, I always thought you were French. Albert Finney is Detective Hercule Poirot. This is no ordinary mystery. Can't touch nothing. This is Agatha Christie's most perfect crime. Murder on the Orient Express.
0: Murder on the Orient Express, Andy. Do you have something to say? Would you like to open the bidding? I just want to say that was a fine mustache strap that Hercule Poirot wore. It was a fine hairnet and mustache strap. It was a no fine wonder I never have strap. liked mustaches. I just didn't have the right strap for it. You
1: don't it. have a strap. That's exactly no. right. And I'll the bet. You, you I'll wear. bet when you shave, I'll bet you, uh, Hercule shaves with a straight razor. I'll bet you do not. Ah uh, no. Do you, what do you mean?
0: What do you shave with? I see people get killed with those. Do you? <laughs> do use you? Those.
1: Are you a wet shaver or are you a dry shaver?
0: I'm a wet shaver. Who shaves dry? That's. I mean that's...
1: with a machine, you know, with the electrical machine. Oh,
0: with a, with a like a clipper? An electric or a, like razor. Like an electric shaver? No. Yeah,
1: electric shaver. You don't.
0: Use no, you don't get a smooth no. shave with an electric shaver.
1: No, you don't. It's a terrible that's superficial nonsense. shave. Yes. You know who uses that? <laughs> Journalists.
0: I got to get out the door. Hey, uh, let's. Got to hit the beat. Shave the car. Wait we're talking about was,
1: uh anyway. <laughs> uh we're talking about Sydney uh, take on murder on the orient express the classic uh, agatha christie who done it uh and uh, starring the well adapted hercule poirot her uh, one of her most famous and enduring characters uh at this time played by albert finney we're we're doing this in part for our ingrid bergman series which you may be confused about because she's hardly in this movie. <laughs> mm. yep, Yep. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but she was there. She did show up, and she had a an, an apparently an award-winning scene. What do you think of this one?
0: Well, we have talked about Kenneth Branagh's recent remake on the film board. We watched that, and uh, J.J., Tommy, and I discussed what Branagh did and how mm-hmm. he adapted it and what our thoughts were there. I think... I can see why this is a murder mystery that people want to adapt. There's an interesting element to the story, the fact that it has this interesting whodunit twist that you don't find in many murder mysteries. The fact that it boils down to this twist that I guess we will just say, spoiler alert now, Everybody did it. The whole the whole king caboodle, everybody on the train pretty much, <laughs> is involved in this murder. And it's a really interesting twist. I think that it works really well, and I think it speaks to the point of uh, an element of murder and why they did it. And I think what I find interesting about the story is the way that it puts Poirot into this interesting conundrum about – how we should proceed he figures out what happened but is that what should be reported it was a bad it was a murder a repulsive murder that was killed should that uh should that person uh, be allowed to be killed without having uh, the same justice brought to him that the people that he had killed did not have and so it it's an interesting story i haven't read the book I enjoy the story. I think that there are some really interesting characters in the story. I also haven't seen a lot of Agatha Christie uh, adaptations, nor have I read many of her books. But what I do find in the few that I've read and the few films that I've seen is that her style of mystery storytelling is very specific to the genre where they have these characters and this is the mystery and here's the puzzle and now we're going to watch the pieces get kind of solved and put into place and it works really well in context of the story when you kind of step back and you try to absorb it outside of that in in kind of a bigger scope it it kind of loses a little steam i think this is a really interesting story but it's not like a solid film it's not something that you watch because there's really, uh, compelling character arcs and everything. I mean, you, you see the mystery get, uh, put into place and then solved. And then it kind of, uh, it flags a little bit after that because there's just not much more beyond it. Um, other than kind of the pieces I'd already spoken about the kind of this, the interesting twist with this one. And then the struggle that I always have is you end up in this place where once you've seen it, especially with these types of mysteries, because the characters aren't as rich, You end up in this place where you just start watching these people move pieces around.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and there's nothing. There's nothing really interesting about it. I think it all hinges, for me at least, on who's playing Poirot, right? Who is the who's the detective, and what is it that he is bringing to the table, uh, to to the performance, to allow us to invest in his methodology, right, and his per- peculiarities, uh, be, because that's central to caring about how he goes about. Being stuck right in the middle of this morality play uh, that he finds himself in the middle of, and to your point, I think you're exactly right. Like this is, the, it it's a very difficult story, and it's it's not the the it ends up being more than the run of the mill sort of who done it because it it is Poirot's unsolvable mystery, right? He knows what happened, but he is you know he proclaims he is beyond judgment, right? He can't. He can't actually pass judgment on on this. And in In that regard, the trouble that I have with this film, as much as I do enjoy the way uh, the way they approach it and the way they approach compression in the train and the way they approach you know the the uh, the way the camera moves in to show us details to reveal details as we go along, I think this is a this is um, you know the film does a good job an able job at allowing us to keep up with what they need us to see at any given point, and that I find is fun. I think Albert Finney is less of a Poirot than Kenneth Branagh. I think he is a central upgrade to uh, to the film, uh, to the remake uh, last year precisely because of the weight he puts on the morality part, on that central change, right? That central morality transgression at the end. And his performance in that final reveal is so much stronger. And the weight of the world that sits on his shoulders is so much heavier than on Albert Finney, who essentially just wipes his hands of the thing and goes about his business. And I don't care for that. I get that it's it's kind of a character choice, but I needed to see this Poirot feel something, and I don't. I, I don't see it uh, on screen. Uh, the the end of the film, uh, you know, when uh, I, when they they make the decision. Oh, I think I'll go with choice number one. It is resolved so quickly without any consequence. And that drives me bonkers for a movie that otherwise I think is pretty good. And I have a good time with the end is it's just detracts from the goodwill that it builds to that point.
0: There are a few points about Poirot that you brought up. I mean, I agree, and, and it's a struggle I have, and I don't think that we can fully pin it to Albert Finney and Kenneth Brana. I think it really boils down to the screenwriters the that were adapting the script to the directors, all of that. This was 1974, and I feel like they were really working on making, and again, I haven't read the book, but I feel like it's a, a, a trying to be a more faithful adaptation to the story, right? You don't get a lot of kind of backstory with Poirot. You just get this is this guy. He's here. And this is this case that now he's kind of stuck in the middle of.
1: Right. His credentials are built by the people around him. Right. By the shock and awe
0: that they have by being in his presence. Exactly. Because of that, we're just kind of put in this place where here's this world famous detective and that's that. And so then the story just moves forward in a very much kind of closed room murder mystery as he puts the pieces in place. What Brana did, and I think the screenwriters, they looked at the story and they found ways to open it up and make it bigger. Now, it didn't always work. There was this mad chase with Josh Gad running down like the, the stairs on a bridge and stuff like that. That just It just was kind of yeah, nonsensical. That was I didn't like that at all. Yeah, But you also did have more with Poirot where you had him talking to the picture of his dead wife and things like that, that I I don't know if they pulled those elements from other Poirot stories that Agatha Christie had written and kind of built those in to just kind of flesh his character out more, but it gave me so much more meat. Now, on the flip side of that, I think that what, what Albert Finney was working with He did an incredible job because I have, I mean, I honestly, this is, I think, the most I've ever lost Albert Finney in a performance. Like, I just stopped seeing Albert Finney, and I can't see anything but this character of Poirot because he's such a peculiar character. And the way that he plays him is just, just... You know, spot on, perfect—at at least as my interpretation of what I think Poirot would end up being. I think Brana is great, but I do still end up seeing Brana underneath all of it, and I think he's terrific as Poirot. But there's something about Albert Finney that I love. I just wish that he was given the opportunity to take that script and do more with it that that Brana had the opportunity to do.
1: Yeah, I struggle with it because I, I feel like uh, there's a certain Al- Albert Finney performance, and he. Yeah, I don't know. I he has a little bit of the of the marbles in his mouth uh, when he's going to his full sort of Belgian French uh, a- a- experience, <laughs> and I struggle to just understand him. I, the number of times I had to rewind the film uh, and step back and hear sequences again because I, I just he was so buried in the part. Um, I I definitely get it, but I did go back and watch some clips of other people who. Uh, Portrayed uh, Poirot, that were interesting performances, like Ian Holm and Alfred Molina and Orson Welles and John Malkovich. Did the ABC Murders on BBC One, and the trailer for that looks terrific. Uh, what a strange assortment of people that we have over the you know decades that Poirot has been around, and I my preference. It lands on Branagh because of the, and I think it's Branagh's film because of the performance at the end of the of the film. This, you know, this version of it just falls apart for me at the end. No matter how much I like Albert Finney, and, and you know, to your point, his, um, you know, his just very invested performance as Paro.
0: It, it, and, and you know, I and I think it's going to end up being one of those things. I mean, there. I think. What did I count? Like eleven different people who have played yeah. uh, Hercule Poirot, and whether it's a TV movie or or cinema. And I think that it's really interesting that he's just a he. I mean, it's it's like Hamlet. It's a character that actors are. Inevitably going to be excited about the opportunity to play because it's a really interesting character. He's a very intelligent character. There's a lot you can do with it, and I mean, I I agree with you completely. I think that that Kenneth Branagh brought a lot to it, and I I mean, I'm right there. As soon as Death on the Nile comes out in 2020, I'm very much looking forward to seeing him do that adaptation because I think, mm-hmm. uh, despite some of my thoughts about the the his adaptation of Murder on the Orient Express. He still did a great job with it. So, yeah, it's it's a tricky, it's a it's an interesting character. And I think it's, it's tricky to kind of evaluate our opinions on them. But I totally get it. I, I think that Hercule Poirot will be one of those uh, characters that people will enjoy different actors depending on kind of what they want to take out of it. I mean, I, I know that David Suchet was, I mean, he was Poirot on that TV show that was, that ran for, I don't know, like five, ever. six years. Right. Yeah, that... And it was just one of those shows that just seemed to go on forever, so yeah, yeah. i i uh, I think it's interesting, but yes, regardless of that, I think that we have kind of just a it's a we're stuck in a situation where we have a basic issue with. Kind of the way that this story is structured because it is, you know, like it or not, maybe a little closer adaptation to the original source material than Branagh's version. And because of that, it's just it ends up being thinner. It ends up being a very straightforward murder mystery, despite the twists of the murder mystery. I'm not speaking to that, but just it's. Here's the crime, here's the detective, here are the red herrings, here's the solution. And that is exactly what we get. And it's interesting to go through it, but this is my second time watching this one now. And I just found myself kind of, okay, now we got to talk to this person. And it just, it's not as uh, involving.
1: It's a procedural. It, It might as well be, you know, CSI Turkey.
0: At least that CSI is yeah, TV. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. TV's the TV show, though, gets a more opportunity to really dig into the characters.
1: Well, and that's not what I'm what I'm really talking about, just in terms of how they build each of the, you know, the the people that we meet on the train. uh, You know, we're taking Poirot as a, uh, you know, as table stakes like we know who he is. We know his methods. We're assuming I'm assuming the royal we here because he's been in, you know, uh, 50 short stories and 30 books. And he's you know, we we the royal we know who he is if we're followers of him in this film. We come up against these transient characters, these this family that we only get to experience uh, over a breath of, of time. And that makes it really hard because there are a lot of characters, a lot of very famous faces on this train. And it's hard to, uh, maybe intentionally, hard to figure out who to follow, hard to figure out who to, uh, you know, who to wage against. Um, and in that regard, I actually think uh, old Sydney does an, an able job of, of passing us the clues and moving us through the mystery uh, as efficiently as he is possibly able to. Um, I I did not have, I, I absolutely agree with you. I struggle with that feeling of being invested in any given character. I don't care about the family's plight by the end, but I did find myself enjoying the mechanics of the investigation.
0: I do find by the time we get to the end and we understand what's going on, when we actually see the faces, particularly Lauren Bacall, who I think is a sign of strength in this film, I think that we're, we're finally getting a sense of the emotions that were involved in this story and that's it's a frustrating element that we had when we discussed the film board um, more recent one and with this one you don't get Really connected at all to young daisy armstrong and and her family, this one did a better job in kind of setting that up, so you at least had a sense of that story, but still you have no connection to these people now it's possible when Agatha Christie wrote the book we were you know the times were were a lot closer to when the book came out, which was in nineteen thirty four to when there was the what was the the baby the, the Lindbergh um, baby yeah the Lindbergh baby right was was kidnapped Um, just a few years before. So I think the public probably had a much stronger connection to this story because they could very easily put themselves in the heads of everything that was in the press and the media and all that stuff about the Lindbergh baby and just the trauma. And it was very easy to kind of connect to that. And I think that helped this story where you didn't need to really have that set up for the the family. Unfortunately, now I feel like it's in a place where – Without that, it's harder to connect these characters. And then it just it turns into this, this endless shuffle of, now we'll talk to the next person, and now we'll talk to the next person. And you're right. Because of that, it becomes this, this thing where you're just like, okay, I'm going to just look into the procedural and just see how all the pieces fit into place. And that's where I'm going to find my pleasure in the film.
1: One of the central differences between this and the remake uh, is... Specifically to your point, this one gives us the opening sequence where we get all the names and the pictures through the reels and the photos, the zooms on the on the newspapers and things. So we get a little bit of history uh, and we get the essentially the the act itself of the kidnapping. Um, And so we we get a little bit of of a place in time uh, for, for what happened leading us into the train. They removed that from the remake. Branagh removed that and replaced it with an, a, a scene where we get, you know, Paro applying his trade to a different mystery. Um, what's your take on that? Because, I, you know, I'm, I, my sense is, and, and in listening to the show that you guys did uh, on the remake, you weren't keen on removing that, on removing that sense of, of context. On rewatching, did you find that helped you here mechanically to get back into the, into the frame of mind of the film? Did you need it?
0: I think so. I mean, that's the only thing we have to get any sense of what these people are, uh, kind of all concerned about what this crime is revolving around. Without having that information, uh, I mean, I think Tommy, when we talked on the film board about the, the Brana version, he was very confused because he's like, they keep talking about this Armstrong case. And it's just like, I had no context of what that was. I think it's absolutely important to have. Now, I personally, I also really enjoyed the bit at the Wailing Wall at the beginning of Brana's version, which is referenced in the beginning of this one, but we don't see it. We just have right. the police chief saying, oh, thank you so much for helping us. It's just like kind of like the the platitudes at the end of that, which it I mean, it's it's nice that it's there. It gives us a sense that something had happened, but I really liked that we got to see it. And, uh, you know, can we have both? <laughs> that would be my answer. <laughs>
1: Uh, okay let's let 's look at some of this massive cast uh in the family, and I think we should start maybe because it's the easiest. We should probably start with our uh, our principal character for our series, Ingrid Bergman as Greta Olson.
0: Your point was very apt that you made earlier the fact that this is an Ingrid Bergman series that we are doing right now and that this film was selected as one of the films to be discussed in it. This is the least Bergman film of our (laughs) Bergman films that we're discussing. She is a character on the train, but nothing more than that. And the fact that her performance was so singled out, I find really strange, especially because I don't think she's the strongest performance of the supporting actresses. And so it's an interesting choice to go with. I, I like what she's doing. I think that her performance is fine as this uh, woman who has gone off to, uh, she's not even sure, you know, she says Africa, but really it would have been India, I guess, to to do some missionary work. And, uh, you know, there's the religious aspect. And I, I think there are some interesting aspects to her character. Um, But it's it ends up for me just becoming kind of another Christie character that she's here to to play her part. And I don't find a lot of uh, a lot of excitement with it. Yeah, I I really
1: struggle with it. I struggled even more with it after I watched her uh, acceptance speech for the Academy Award. It it is uh, you know we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's hard to to see that and not completely agree with her that she was uh she's the wrong person for the for the award. Uh, and and so I, I find it um, I, I just find it troublesome. Now, her in her award winning scene is a short one, but it's fine. Uh, it's a great little opportunity for a monologue. Um, for her opportunity to tell a little bit of her story and to shake her voice a lot. I just couldn't get over the fact that as she ages, she looks so much more like her daughter. Every movie, I thought this was an older (laughs) Isabella Rossellini uh, wandering through the screen. It was it was shocking. Uh, So
0: (laughs) that is funny. Well, she (laughs) certainly ages gracefully. She sure does. I mean, we last talked about her in 1950. And is that right? Gosh, yeah, Yeah, because now it's 1974. Yeah. We skipped a hefty chunk. um, And I, you know, just it is what it is. She went off and worked in Europe for a while because of the whole affair that she had with Rossellini, as we talked about last Mm -hmm. week. And then she kind of came back to Hollywood with Anastasia in 1956 and then was just kind of doing whatever. And uh, yeah. Just a lot of different projects, but this is the next one that we're talking about. And it's, you know, I think it's a fair one to put on the list because she did win an Academy Award for it. So I I think there's a reason and logic for it to be something that we discuss in our Ingrid Bergman series. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's it's yeah, I wasn't as wowed by this as perhaps the uh, the Academy voters were at the time.
1: Is this one of those things where she possibly won for a body of work something immediately before uh you know was this an award for a walk in the spring rain or cactus flower that they just finally got around (laughs) to giving her something
0: you know i don't i mean well it's her third oscar so it's not like she had never won and they finally gave her
1: one yeah that's Um,
0: true I mean we've talked about two of the performances Diane Ladd and Alice doesn't live here anymore Talia Shire in The Godfather Part 2 and then she was up against Madeline Kahn in Blazing Saddles and Valentina Cortese in Day for Night. I I mean we haven't talked about Day for Night and I haven't seen it. Blazing Saddles I think Madeline Kahn is hilarious in that film. Yes. Talia Shire we've talked about in The Godfather Part 2 she's great in that film and Definitely a supporting character. She's a big character. Same thing with Diane Ladd. Between the three, I would probably pick Diane Ladd. I thought that she was great in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And uh, yeah, it's just it's a surprising win for me.
1: Okay, so moving on, uh, we've talked a little bit about Albert Finney um he's i think apart from the procedural stuff and he does an able job of of diving into the part i regret a little bit not being able to see the uninterrupted final presentation uh his final you know, speech is almost 30 minutes long and it is continuously interrupted by either flashbacks or, you know, recreations in order to, to move us along the story. And that's all by necessity. I'm not complaining about that. I mean, we we need to have that repeated sense of context there, but I feel like if there's a time for him to shine and you can feel it, that he, he's delivering this thing in as much, you know, long uh, swaths of speech I want to see those, you know, I want to see as much uninterrupted as I can. And I feel like that, that sort of robbed him of a chance to, to really perform. Uh, But he, you know, he's still great and he's particularly great, you know, in that third act in the big reveal. Uh, It's, it's why you show up, you know, for the movie.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I honestly, I really loved him through the whole thing. I think he's just a, just a treat to watch. I just think he's a, I mean, he's, he's so funny I mean he's got like no neck the way that he kind of runs when there's that scene when he leaves the the uh the princess and runs to talk to her her maid and his run to catch up with her uh to kind of catch her before she gets too close to the back to the princess's suite or the her her train car I just it was so funny like he I don't know he cracks me up the way he puts on the the Gloves when he's reading the newspaper. Everything about him just made me laugh. I found him just a delight to watch from beginning to end. So and so much uh, of you, what
1: he did to that point was unapologetic and unexplained. Like why yeah.
0: we don't see why he does so many of
1: the things he does. He just does them because he's Poirot. Yeah. And I I'm right with you. I think he is. He's very funny and and um, you know in terms of his kind of you know he's Sherlock Holmes without any of the the you know panache right that. <laughs> Sherlock right. Holmes is also quite strange, but he is he's much more sophisticated, I think, and uh, so I, I quite liked him. The other, you know, I should argue more sophisticated uh, character in here of Edward Beddoes, played by John Gilgood. I loved watching John Gilgood; uh, it just always feels like he's meant to play the butler. <laughs>
0: Right, or God. I mean, or I think God. that's the only yeah. time we've talked about him was when he <laughs> played God. Uh, he's uh, just fantastic, and I feel like, gosh, he's an actor. I'd love to explore more because he's got some. He's got a lot of great performances, and uh, but it is funny how the ones where he plays the butler seem to be the ones that stick.
1: <laughs> Anthony Perkins. I want to talk about Anthony Perkins because when Anthony Perkins holds the knife, you think, man, that guy's an actor.
0: Anthony Perkins is an actor who unfortunately gets bogged down anytime uh, you see him, because, or at least for me, because I always think of Psycho. And what made me laugh watching this is having him asked if he loves loves his mother. No, <laughs> it's just like I, I go right to Psycho. I'm like, is he really the best choice when you have a line like that? He just <laughs> can't win. No, and you know, I uh, honestly I felt like he needed to like wink at the camera or something when he replied, <laughs> just to acknowledge that there's a little bit of a, a joke in there. But uh, yeah, it's not there. It's an interesting set of performances across the board. Uh, I don't know who. Do you have favorites? Or well, we got we got all my favorites?
1: favorites. I think the the ones that the only other one that I really okay. So I, we've uh, unfortunately talked about mostly men so far because there there were you know apart from Sean Connery as uh, Colonel Arbuthnot, uh, who was. Merged, he and the Doctor. I think they got merged, Doctor Constantine, in in the remake. Uh, so we get to see them in their full feather here. Um, I, I also quite liked Vanessa Redgrave; she was great to see. I was very surprised uh, to see Jacqueline Bissette, uh in in the movie. I'd forgotten she was even in it as the Countess uh, Elena Andreny, and so I, I I think there were some fine. Again, procedural performances that nothing that really stood out to me uh, in in the rest of the characters. So,
0: the, yeah, I mean, Richard Widmark is always great as kind of the the scummy guy, and he does fine here with that playing the role of Johnny Depp. Right, exactly. Lauren Bacall for me is the one who her her role is kind of a frustrating one. She's never my favorite character through the bulk of the film. Same thing with Michelle Pfeiffer. But by the time we get to the end and we're wrapping everything up, I find that that's where the real heart of the film comes and watching her face as whether it's, you know, truths being revealed or when everybody is going through the act and stabbing, uh, stabbing Cassetti, whatever it is. I, I feel that that's where there's a real heart to this film and I find the soul in her face and that is something that I really needed by the time I hit that point in the film. Because that, all of a sudden, I felt like, okay, I get it. Now I'm here with all of this. It's not just about solving this puzzle. It's about solving this heartache for all these people and this injustice. And what's frustrating, I think, is it really kind of takes an awfully long time to feel anything about any of these people. And I really appreciate that it's there. And I'm glad that it's Laura McCall because I think that she can carry it and really does. But it, again, it's just frustrating that it's, you know, it's not until that climactic reveal at the end of the film that you get that. If anything, that is the performance that I would have said is more likely to be noticed as a supporting actress nomination. And I certainly felt that when I saw... Branagh's version. I said, Michelle Pfeiffer, if anyone is going to get pushed for a performance Oscar out of this, it's Michelle Pfeiffer for supporting actress. Yes. Because she really had the emotional core of that film. So much more than Penelope Cruz, who played Ingrid Bergman's role. It was just such a small, insignificant part. And I really end up feeling that way about Ingrid Bergman in this film.
1: You know it's interesting too because when you hear Lumet talk about that role, and I'm I'm speaking specifically in contrast to Penelope Cruz, they didn't give Penelope Cruz the big monologue opportunity, right? In that movie, she never had the chance to to do sure what Lumet did for. Um, you know, for the part of Greta in this particular film. She had chosen a very small part, and I couldn't persuade her to change her mind. Uh, She was sweetly stubborn, but stubborn she was. Her part was so small, I decided to film her one big scene where she talks for almost five minutes straight in one long take. A lot of actresses would have hesitated over that. She loved the idea and made the most of it. She ran the gamut of emotions. I've never seen anything like it. Um, You know, clearly, she was moving, uh, at, at the time but i I'm, I'm with you in terms of weight of performance and as kind of the leader of the s- the stabbing scene right when when they turn on the blue light that is a a haunting and terrifying sequence um, that i think is just terrifically executed and that's you know because the one i notice in there
0: i mean and to your point i will say yes ingrid bergman does have a really strong scene and to that end, sometimes that is all all you need need is to have a really incredibly powerful scene with an incredible actress who can pull it off. And that's an award-winning performance. Anne Hathaway did it for Les Mis and kudos to her. And I think in that case, I mean, it's possible she did did deserve it. She was really amazing in that performance. But um, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. I think that Ingrid Bergman, sure, maybe nominate her for the film, but I still would argue the point that it wasn't a deserved win.
1: You want to talk about getting it made? Sure. I think this is a fascinating story because apparently Agatha Christie had not been uh, she she'd not been enjoying the adaptations of her work to date, and was really not into having uh, to giving the rights uh, to selling the rights to this one again. Uh, and so, um, you know, it was it was a team uh, approach. Nat Cohen, the chairman of EMI, and uh, the film's producer John Bradbourne actually went to Lord Mountbatten of Burma of the British royal family and. Uh, John Bradburn's br- father-in-law and had Lord Mountbatten of Burma go to Agatha Christie to actually request that this uh, uh, th- that she sell the rights. And so, uh, you know, she did. And it turns out she, l- she I-, I haven't found anywhere that says she liked it. I have nowhere that says she actually liked it. The quote from her husband is that she uh, (laughs) was—I love the quote— Agatha herself has always been allergic to the adaptation of her books by the cinema, but was persuaded to give a rather grudging appreciation to this one. She was not crazy about Albert Finney as Poirot. She said that he uh, was supposed to have the finest mustache in England, and he didn't in the film. She says, I thought, what a pity. Why shouldn't he? Uh, which is delightful she seems like a a sort of a curmudgeon uh, (laughs) uh, of a a lady and that what a delight Uh, the first cast member approached was uh, Sean Connery Uh, they that Lumet said you know with a cast like this what are we going to do to get people to say yes to these you know some cases quite small roles well we're going to start with the biggest star on screen at the time and we're going to you know we're going to see if they can Pied Piper, the rest of the cast. And it worked, uh, saying everybody else just sort of fell right into place as soon as Conry was reported to have signed on. Uh, so, huh. yeah, it's it it, It's interesting to me that they start with Connery, who ended up in, again, a sort of a, a meager role. Uh, I I find myself... Fantasizing a little bit to see what he would have done with a role like Poirot, he never could have played the lead. He's just too tall, um, you know. He doesn't have that sort of goofiness to him. But uh, I, 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 I do have that little fantasy.
0: That would have been an interesting thing. I mean, if Tony Randall can do it. Tony Randall, right? <laughs>
1: That's bizarre. Uh, the, the inspiration to the film, you know, we've already talked about the kidnapping of Charles and, and Anne-Marle Lindbergh's baby, right, the right, Charles right. Lindbergh Jr. And then the story of the 19, 1929 Orient Express train getting stuck in the snow for five days in wow. Cherkesskui.
0: I was wondering if you were going to try to pronounce that. I
1: did. I did. I think uh, I think I did a fine job. Uh 81 miles great.
0: outside of
1: Istanbul. Those are the sort of dueling inspirations for the movie that or for the uh, the book uh as it is as it is written.
0: When did you first see this movie? Do you remember?
1: Um oh geez. I, I imagining college. Uh, I, I don't actually have a memory of the first time I saw the movie, but um, I've, I've seen it a few times and I have it. I had it in my collection.
0: So, well, because it, it's, it's one of those things like I wonder I always wonder, like, when do people come to Agatha Christie and, yeah. and start kind of seeing her stories? And because, yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, she had adaptations, I mean, back in the silent era. I mean, she was writing books back then. So why not? And a lot of these ones from the 40s, 50s, 60s, yeah, I, I hadn't seen any of those. I think the only one that I ever saw outside of this was The Mirror Cracked from 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only other book that I had read was And Then There Were None. And so I, I just my I don't have a big experience of uh, of kind of her and her stories. But – I I do think it's interesting and I mean I'm always curious about her books and so every time there's talk about Agatha Christie I'm always like gosh I should read more of her books because they they definitely pique my curiosity even if they are kind of simple straightforward murder mysteries but I think that she does it well and that's a thing I think a thing I think that she did figure out and so I can appreciate that she would be unhappy with adaptations and, and a bit of a curmudgeon with how things kind of played out with her work. So, I mean, I, I can totally appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, it just it does make me kind of want to weirdly read some of her books, I guess. So count that for a win for her.
1: This is actually really interesting then. So you didn't see the 78 death on a Nile on the Nile. Uh, nope. Where Peter Ustinov uh, played it, played <laughs> it, he played it. <laughs> I get the same he played it real good. I, I sort of get the same feeling uh, uh, about hell. I I don't know. I, I think it's a really interesting thing and uh, absolutely worth checking out, particularly in the run up to the to the remake. And and I I'm think sure he will, honestly, yeah. I think it's a better it's a better film for me. Uh, but these are really the only. I, I don't even think I've. Seen, I think these are the only two that I've seen. And you know what's funny? As you as you were talking, I thought, why did I stop watching this movie? Because I was fascinated uh, by it for a short period, and then I think it was when I was introduced to like Murder by Death and um, Clue, and like there was this period where more of these chaos murder houses uh, came out all in a row, and I feel like I moved on from murder on the Orient Express. Uh, mm. there's, there's also a bit of the romantic fascination with the film that, um, you know, I, I do I, I do think it romanticizes the train in just the right way. Uh, and and I find I, I want to be a part of it. You know, I, I want to be on it. I want to sit in the dining car. And, you know, my Amtrak dining car is just not like this. <laughs> It's just right. not the same. Um, right, there's
0: a, so, there's a th- something interesting about trains back in the day where, you know, I mean, this was the 1935 the story takes place.
1: Right. It's
0: how people got around.
1: That's interesting. It's an interesting way to look at it, too. When do they when do they come to Agatha Christie and when do they fall off of Agatha Christie?
0: Yeah, right, right. Like when do you move past it because yeah. you just kind of need your murder mysteries to be a, have a little more depth and a little more meat to and them, it, not just kind exactly. of these simple puzzle solving exercises. And I, I, I say that so completely as a non Agatha Christie reader, like maybe right. she really has some really complex books. I just, you know, I, I've only read and then there were none. So I don't know if it's completely fair of me to say, but that's just my sense of them from mm-hmm. the, two, the two films I've seen and the one book I've read. And, and can I, I before we get into the technical stuff, I do have to ask a few questions, though, about the story. So, oh, oh, no, <laughs> no. I, and I But well, and I get the story. Like, I, it all makes sense to me. But this is this is where I end up struggling when when you have a film like this. So all of these people, this is their plan. They're going to get on this train and they're <laughs> going to commit this crime and they're going to – my my sense is they decide to go through these incredibly complex uh, machinations only because Hercule Poirot ends up in the next room. Is that right? Or, or I mean, were they going to kill Ratchet a little easier or not make it not quite so complicated if he had stayed down in the other room with uh, Anthony Perkins? Or or was this their? they were going to be just this grandiose all the time? I think they were going to be this
1: grandiose, but not because they were going to be just just because they were fans of grandiosity, (laughs) but because (laughs) they were trying to stymie any, you know, further investigation. Right. The, there's that whole part of the speech, which I think they bury a little bit about, um, you know, 12 on a jury, 12 people committing the crime. Sure. And, and th- that is, it feels to me more central to the reason that they, were, they, they orchestrated this whole thing um, than just fodder for his soliloquy. Um, that, that there is there something are, to that that is not pieces. explained.
0: There are clear pieces though that Poirot kind of points out that they did purely for his benefit, like the whole changing of the time on the clock uh-huh. and to to make it look like the murder happened at or the that it happened at an earlier time, the whole faking of, you know, when Anthony Perkins is like pretending to be Ratchet and he's talking to uh uh the the guard or the uh trainman, mm-hmm. um Jean Pierre Cassel. And he's doing that, and Poirot kind of is listening out through his door, and then we have Lauren Bacall calling on her buzzer, and then somebody knocks on his door, and he sticks his head out, and there's the woman in the in the silk robe walking down the hall. Like, all of this stuff is done just to keep him awake so that the murder can happen later when everybody's sleeping. It seems awfully complicated <laughs> to try to make all this work. Why not just not worry about all of that stuff and just wait until later. Like, I don't understand why they had to go through such complexities.
1: Well, and and I think that, I mean, so much of this, of the murder itself is ceremonial, right? Because it is, it, you can't just watch this and, like, think, well, well, they just made it too hard on themselves. They really did, but they did it for a, a deeply emotional reason. Otherwise, they could have just drugged, uh, ratchet, right? Like Anthony, when Anthony Perkins, when he does it, drugged yeah. him and then stabbed somebody, go in and stab him while he's asleep. He didn't make any noise. Nobody made any noise. Uh, it would have right. been fine, but they needed to. You, you have to buy into the fact that everyone gets a shot, and that creates enough of a commotion that th- they have to make sure you know everybody's asleep or or that the train is otherwise quiet, and so. So I have it in my maybe my headcanon about this film that even if Guaro hadn't been there, like maybe they were taking some extra precautions, but even if they hadn't been there, they would have gone through a lot of these sort of mechanics for someone else, whoever else would have been on the train. Now, in this case, most of that carriage was taken up by them, I think. I don't think there was anybody else on there if it had not been for all the moves to get Poirot there. So, you know, maybe that you take with a grain of salt. But
0: Well, and you've got the train. There's the people who work in the restaurant or the train, the food car. You've got Bianchi. Uh, So there are some other people that kind of pop in and out, even if there are, you know, they're minor. They're very minor. They're minor. Right. My other question that I have for you is – it's not really a question. It's just a, a, a concern, I think, that I would have. Being one of these people, what if Ratchet recognized any of these people? I mean, he was the person who was the number one complicit in killing Daisy, which led to four other people dying. And I'm sure that some of these faces had been in the news or did, did Daisy's grandmother, was she like her photo never put into the papers? Like, it just seems strange to me. Now, granted, I know it's 1935 or between 30 and 35. Not as many photos were in newspapers, uh, except, uh, you know, the rich and famous sorts of things. Um, But I think in a case like this, sure, grandma's photo is probably going to be in the paper. Do you think that Ratchet's going to recognize her when she comes onto the train? Like, it was like, gosh, that's an awful lot of people to put onto a train that he might recognize just one of them.
1: (laughs) Okay, so this was actually a central question that I had when you guys did the show on the remake because I mm. think this they never actually fix that hole. I totally well, agree with you. This is by all rights an incredibly famous family, right? I mean, this is famous sure. enough to have this It's like the, the that, I mean, it's that's the Lindberghs right yeah. Of course, somebody is going to be noticed. somebody is going to be noticed, and really. The dad is dressed up as the trainman and nobody catches that? Like I I just don't I don't buy the intrigue behind that if I stop and look at it. Um, I, I totally agree with you and I don't have an answer for it. Frustrating. Uh can we, I I'm interested in your take on camera. This is a challenging film to move around, as was the other one, but they clearly used so many, you know, digital effects and replacements and false walls and things in the in the remake.
0: It, <laughs> Even though they're shooting on sixty five millimeters.
1: Shooting on sixty five millimeter from like security camera angles. But the uh this film, they were dealing with some uh real practical challenges. How do you feel like the camera moved around the train? This is the work of I should say Jeffrey
0: Unsworth. Uh yeah. And I I didn't notice it. I, I felt like Brana put a little more of a stamp on his camera work, particularly like that last tracking shot that follows him through the whole train. Like that was a really kind of a beautifully done shot. In this particular case, I the, what I noticed the most, which actually I really liked the way that Lumet chose to do this, was when you had Poirot going through the uh, kind of... Uh, putting all the puzzle pieces into place at the end and talking to each of the people about you said this and you said this, when he would cut to the person's face who said that it would be a close up wide angle lens. So their face had a little bit of distortion and the lighting would be much stronger, uh, whether it was more toppy or more coming from the side. It was, it was much different of a look than when we saw poirot having that conversation with them earlier when they would say those things and it was a really interesting way to kind of emphasize those points and i liked that they did that that was a really fun way to play around with that and give us a a sense of the way that poirot interpreted those things that they said or i shouldn't say interpreted but caught those moments that they said to kind of that became giveaways
1: Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I think that was a, a, a really nice visual trick to put us in Poirot's head, that sort of first person. I felt like, you know, we were the third person sort of omniscient in the the first time we see those passages, and then we're in Poirot's face. And I thought that was really nice. I, I think, you know, back to that sequence of his big reveal, too, you know, the, the, uh, they had to do that over and over and over again because they could not get the coverage with enough cameras or putting the camera in the right places to get that piece, uh, to get that entire sequence uh, in you know, l- large enough chunks. And so that was done over and over and over dozens of times, uh, Poirot's big final reveal speech, so that they could get it from all sorts of different angles. And that's a testament not just to uh, the the patience of the camera crew, but also the patience of the performers who had to, you know, be just rock still for so long uh, for all of the continuity um, uh, issues and I didn't notice any of them uh, for a single sequence that took so much time it was shot over so many days. Um, you know, uh, I I didn't notice any any failings there, and that would have been where it happens.
0: Yeah, no, I, I thought it worked fine. Yeah, I don't know if I would say this was standout as far as the cinematography, but I certainly thought they did a great job with yeah. what they were with, with what they were trying to do for the story.
1: Totally, totally, totally.
0: To that end, though, I I do want to talk about the music. Just a few episodes ago, you had an issue with the music in Spellbound because it was a great score, but you felt it was very poorly put into the film because it really kind of took you out of it because it just didn't feel like it fit. Do wow, you finally understand? With this <laughs> film, Richard Rodney Bennett, uh, the music that he wrote, it's a gorgeous theme, but what a lilting, happy theme it is. Yeah. And when it kicks in, I mean, I feel like it's the train taking off theme. But it's like, that. why do we have a theme that is so positive and chippy? Chippy? Cheery? Chippy? <laughs> <laughs> that word is. Uh, it just, it really didn't feel... Like it was in the right film and it was frustrating. And I know it's a very popular uh, track that has been remixed to do orchestra suites. And it's something that people play a lot because it, it's just a theme that sticks. But it just totally did not belong in this film for me. Really yeah. pulled me out.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I have to say, though, in- some of it, however, is it does fit Poirot. If you step back from the main lilting train is leaving theme and you go into some of the goofy, almost kind of vaudevillian track that that follows Poirot around, uh, I, I think some of that really does work. And, uh, you know, sure. it's, it's goofy, calliope kind of circusy stuff. And that fits this bizarre character uh, that, you know,
0: that we get to live with for two hours.
1: Yeah. How to do an award season. We've already alluded to Ingrid. Did anybody else get any uh, treatment?
0: This was a popular-ish film uh, when award season rolled around. It had nine wins, 16 other nominations. Over at the Academy Awards, it had six nominations, and the one win, as we already said, Ingrid Bergman, winning for Supporting Actress. The losses, Albert Finney was nominated but lost to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. The Adapted Screenplay lost to The Godfather Part Two. Best Cinematography lost to The Towering Inferno. Best Costume Design lost to The Great Gatsby. And Best Original Dramatic Score... Lost at Godfather part two. I haven't seen um I haven't seen Harry and Tonto. I've heard good things about it and I'm curious about it. I uh, I have a hard time arguing the other ones. So I, I feel like it, you know, maybe maybe they the smarter minds prevailed for the rest of the nominations. Yeah. Um, Over at the BAFTAs, they had nine wins or sorry, nine nominations with three wins, plus a special award. Anthony asked the Anthony Askwith award for film music. Richard Rodney Bennett got that. Oh, I don't know why, but he did. Uh, It's just a memorable (laughs) theme, I guess. (laughs) The awards were uh, Best Supporting Actor, John Gilgood. He won Uh, Best Supporting Actress, Ingrid Bergman. She won. As for the other awards that it did not win, Albert Finney was nominated for Best Actor but lost to Jack Nicholson. This is a weird thing with the BAFTAs where it would be just Jack Nicholson for his performances in Chinatown and The Last Detail. Mm -hmm. Best Art Direction lost to The Great Gatsby. Here's another one. Best Cinematography, uh, Unsworth was nominated for this, and Zardoz, but lost to The Great Gatsby. Best Zardoz. Costume Design. <laughs> right? Uh, I wonder if that Zardoz is one nomination. Yeah, right? That was it. Curious. Uh, Best costume design lost to The Great Gatsby. Best direction uh, for this and Serpico. Sidney Lumet was nominated, but lost to Roman Polanski for Chinatown. Best film lost to Lacombe Lucien and Best Film Editing. and V. Coates, who we didn't talk about at all, but she did the editing for this, but lost to Chinatown. And I really have a hard time arguing with that because, man, what a great film that is. Truly.
1: You know, if you want to see Sean Connery on the Orient Express in arguably uh, a better movie, you should go watch From Russia With Love. It just occurs to me that there's a big train are fight. You,
0: are you saying that what this film is lacking is somebody's uh, teeth getting electrocuted <laughs> <laughs> with the end of a broken light bulb? Andy, yes, I'm saying that. I'm <laughs> saying
1: absolutely that.
0: Uh, oh, man. Good times. How to do at the box office. Well, to bring this story to the screen, Lumat was given 1.4 million, which is just over 6.8 million in today's dollars. And honestly, that is really impressive considering his cast and considering that Brana spent 55 million on his recent adaptation. This movie was released November 21st, 1974, hitting theaters in the U.S. Thanksgiving week. The movie was received really well, earning $35.7 million at the box office, or $278.1 million in today's dollars. That kept it just out of the top 10 of the year, but it still leaves it with with an adjusted profit per finish minute of just over $2 million. All told, it's a solid return on an investment for this Christie property. I think it's time for us to rank it. I'm very curious. Well, let's do it. Let's
1: do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap Flickchart, you'll be able to jump straight to this film, where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up to ours.
0: All right. We're going to be having our Bergman block right in the middle. Murder on the Orient Express or Stromboli. <laughs> I will take some murder. I will take some murder too. I'm surprised at that. I and actually, the more I've been thinking about, it, I'm like I regret my choice last week. I feel like I should have picked Spellbound first, <laughs> but it is what it is. We'll have to wait for our big re-ranking <laughs> episode to see if we Andy. Can that'll take right. 19 hours. It will. I know. Right. 19 great hours, <laughs> best Come hours. Who are we kidding? Murder on the Orient Express or Seven Samurai? Absolutely, Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai, please. Murder on the Orient Express or Mother? Mother, please. I will go with Mother as well. Murder on the Orient Express or Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street? Sweeney Todd, please. Sweeney Todd for me as well. Murder on the Orient Express or Creep Show? <laughs> creep Show, please. Absolutely, Creep Show. Murder on the Orient Express or The Road Warrior? <laughs> the Road Warrior, please. I'm feeling a little bit monotonous. Are we done (laughs) the road for me as well? Murder on the Orient Express or Star Trek Beyond? Oh, Star Trek Beyond. Yes, definitely Star Trek Beyond. Murder on the Orient Express or The Lion in Winter? The Lion in Winter. The Lion in Winter, please. Murder on the Orient Express or A Star is Born in 1937? Star is Born 37. Star is Born for me as well. Well, that lands. We have a trio of Bergman smack dab in the middle of our chart. Murder on the Orient Express in 204, Stromboli, 205, Spellbound, 206. Wow. Out of 408 films, they're all pretty much sitting right there at the 50% mark. Wow. That's really interesting. It is interesting. What is that? Uh, what did that do on your list?
1: Did it fall to the bottom as, uh, or did it fall to the middle as uh, as quickly? <laughs>
0: It's close. It's at 1842 at a 4155, which is a 56%. So it's a little higher on my chart.
1: Okay. That's actually interesting. I'm surprised to say that it landed at 597 at a 1091, which is a 45% for me. Again, pretty much right in the middle. According to this, if I were to go by the algorithm, uh, this should be a two and a half star um, letterbox ranking at letterbox.com slash the next reel. I'm I'm feeling okay about that. Uh it, it's it's kind of a middling film. It would probably if I didn't have a connection to it in my youth, uh I would probably rate it a little bit lower. Uh but it's it's sitting right smack in the middle and that
0: feels like where it should stay. Is that with a like? With a heart? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, love? I'll I'll give it a heart.
1: I really have a good time with this movie until the very end, right? I mean, the I just feel like that last sequence when he says, okay, option one, we all go home. Option two, you all go to jail. What do you think? And the train, Bianchi says, I think option one. And then we all go home and we basically, you know, wipe our hands clean of this whole thing and it's over (laughs) i find that really hard to stomach after the the really great job that Branagh did uh in that same sequence so it's it's hard for me to watch this um you know it, it loses the entire thread of the morality play and that sucks a lot of weight out of it but i do have a good time with the mechanical pieces of this film
0: well, especially because it also – and this is something we haven't talked about, but they're also relying on the fact that the doctor is in the room and Bianchi – I mean, obviously, Bianchi's going along with it. But they're relying on all these other people who weren't even involved yeah. to just not spill the beans. Right, right. <laughs> it's like that doctor has blackmail opportunities for the rest of his life. Yeah, he's like, a very he can... <laughs> rich man by the end of this movie.
1: I mean, I not have the money in the bank yet, but he's a very rich
0: man. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's just – he's like, oh, yes, this is sweet. Twelve? people (laughs) and some of them go by the title princess (laughs) You,
1: you kind of imagine that that like you know he's sitting there on the train and you want a cut to him where he's just staring off into the distance and kind of shaking a little bit and maybe a little drool coming out of his mouth like doctor doctor are you okay what what wait how many of you are there again let me count and he's like adding numbers i want to see that movie the blackmail movie that follows this one
0: that's right. Exactly. That's so great. Well, I uh, I ended up last time I watched it, which was the first time I watched it, it was at a three stars and a like. Now, I feel like after rewatching and really kind of seeing how thin it is on so many levels, I feel like I'm right there with you, two and a half and a like, because it is a fun watch. And I do, do, do enjoy the characters. I enjoy the way it unfolds. I just feel it is a pretty thin thing to watch. You're just watching the, the puzzle pieces as they move about. And it's fine. It's entertaining enough. But it, there's just no, no meat for me to really what, latch on
1: to. What if you had to rank this one against the remake?
0: Mm. Uh, for different reasons i think that they're both certainly rewatchable i think that i really just i love albert finney i think he's a hoot to watch in this one but i think brana's version uh, boy i don't know because (laughs) brana he has some really great stuff and like you're talking about the ending in his i think is a lot stronger but he also like that nonsensical chase down the bridge to burn the stuff and it was just like there were some elements that were super stupid in that one that really (laughs) frustrated me to no end so I'm I
1: yeah yeah, I noticed you're still pretty non-committal
0: yeah it's a weird blend between the two like I feel like if I could do a cut of of what I like in both of them I want to do My own Close Encounters of the Third Kind edit of these two films, an amalgam of them together, where I get all the pieces that I like and leave everything else.
1: Murder on the Next Real Express is what you're talking about. That's what
0: I'm talking about. All right. Product. New product. Here, here.
1: Where do we go from here? Now that we have wrapped the train movie, do we get to actually see a movie with our friend (laughs) Ingrid Bergman in it?
0: With more Ingrid. Yes, we do. Uh, we are going to be, this will be our first Ingmar Bergman film that we have looked at on our show. We are going to be looking at a film late in Ingrid's career. This is 1978, just a few years after this, Autumn Sonata. It is her last feature film and it will be an interesting one to look at because it's I've seen it, it's a kind of a difficult film to watch as most Ingmar Bergman films are. But I think that there are some interesting things happening in this film with Ingrid Bergman, the Volman and and Lena Nyman. So I am curious about revisiting Autumn Sonata next time.
1: I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen it. This is this is one of the ones that is totally new to me. Uh, And I'm a little bit nervous. Have you seen much Bergman? Ingmar, that is? Only enough to know that I'm not generally... uh,
0: Ingmar Bergman is not making
1: movies for me. How about that? Me neither.
0: Okay. Me neither. All right. I think Ingmar Bergman is making interesting films that I have a hard time connecting with. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. But, uh, well, everybody... If you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, the Marvel Movie Minute. That's a great way to come right off Ingmar Bergman. (laughs) (laughs) Forget that, Ingmar.
1: Check out the Marvel Marvel Movie Minute. We are talking about the incredibly complex cinematic history of Iron Man, the
0: tapestry that kicked (laughs) off... (laughs) Is that the one where he's playing chess with death? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that's it's, that's Obadiah Stane who's playing chess with you death. know, you know the one
1: where Johnny Favreau asks those big questions: Why are we here? Is there a god? These are the kinds of questions that we take on in the Marvel Movie Minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can support that show and all of our shows over at the slash patreon and you can also get access to our exclusive members only weekend show the Saturday Manet. when the movie ends our conversation begins Amazon giveth, Andy, as Amazon always
1: doeth. And Amazon, uh, I think Amazon hath actually giveth uh, this this week. Um, since we were split down the middle, I went high. You're going low. Would you like yes. to climb the ladder or uh, fall off the ladder?
0: <laughs> let's let's fall
1: off. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to open with Tom, who watched this movie in July of 2017, and says one of the great movies of all time. Sidney Lumen got great actors to participate ensemble. Richard Widmark said he took the role just to meet some other actors. Several of the actors said it was great fun. It all shows through. Beautifully and elegantly filmed, a must-view movie. 40 years later, and it looks as good as it did back in the day.
0: Good old Sidney Lumen. <laughs>
1: Sydney Lumen. Uh, it's it, it sounds more like a networking opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder which of the actors, which several of the actors, said it was fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the ones that Richard Woodmark wanted to meet, Right. apparently. Right. <laughs> uh, well, I've got a one star by Basat Films. Who says, not worth it. And what's funny, it's a one star, but it starts with a lot of stars. (laughs) Because that's his review. A lot of stars. Just ask them. They'll tell you so many stars. Boring. Uh, I like that it's a one star review, yet it's full of stars. It's full of stars. It's like, is it half full or half empty, Pete? It's the interstellar of movie reviews.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amazon.